Have your Bibles, please open them with us again to 2 Peter chapter 3. We'll be looking at the first six verses. 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. Remember in chapter 2, we've spent many weeks there. Peter is, uh, if you will, speaking from anger. He's frustrated. He's, uh, he's deeply concerned about the sheep of God's church, the people of God, and uh, those who are trying to destroy them false teachers, and he speaks over and over and over about them, 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 describing these false teachers. He comes to chapter 3, and the tone changes. He, um, he now begins to speak directly to the flock. He's, of course, been speaking to them the whole time, but now you can see his burden for his beloved brothers and sisters in Christ. Second Peter 3, verse 1, he says, This is now the second letter that I am writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder. So he is, as he has throughout this whole letter, he's recapping some things so he can remind them, so he can bring again to awareness of what they need to know. He's speaking tenderly to these he loves so much and through whom much of the gospel depends they're being faithful to it. And in reminding them, he is doing what he's already been doing all the way through the letter. Back in chapter 1, We spoke a great deal about this, verse 12 of chapter 1. Therefore, I intend always to remind, I think it right as long as I'm in this body to stir you up by way of reminder. The truth is the most important things we learn are usually the things that we've already forgotten, and we need to be reminded of them. Um, Everything he's going to tell them, they already know. They've already heard this, but they need to be reminded of them. Why do we return every seven days to the Lord's house to sit with God's people to hear new stuff? For most of you, it's usually not. But you need to hear it again. You need to be reminded of it. Every once in a while, listen to recordings of me preaching. I can't, I can't even stand to listen to me that much. I can't imagine how you can. But we need somehow, some way, to be reminded of these great truths of the gospel. We could count many of them, but the ones that are certainly on the mind and the heart of Peter is to remind them that Jesus is coming again. He is going to return, and these false teachers are doing everything they can to undermine that way of thinking. So he starts by recapping what he says are the prophecies and commandments of Christ. He says in verse 2, he says, I'm reminding you that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets... And number two, the commandment of our Lord and Savior through your apostles. So remember the predictions of the holy prophets. We, we tend to think of Old Testament prophecy. And for many of us, where our mind goes immediately is all those many prophecies that, that told way ahead of time about the Lord Jesus Christ, his entrance into the world, the times it would be, the, the details about it, his crucifixion. All of that is laid out rather clearly in the, in the Old Testament prophets. But the Old Testament prophets spoke of other things. And I think here what he has in mind is particularly those prophecies that that we would call eschatological. They are the end of the world. They're the things that we associate now with the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. There are many of them that are found in scriptures. Matthew, Malachi, chapter 4, verse 1, near the very end of the Old Testament. Malachi says, for behold, the day is coming. That important day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all the evildoers will be subtle. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall. 
There are many, many Old Testament passages that talk about this coming day and a final ultimate coming day. And almost every time you hear about these days, these days of the Lord, these last days, you can always associate two things with them. The day of the Lord in both the Old Testament and the New Testament speaks about when the Lord visits his people for salvation, when he brings to completion all the victory that he's won for them. But it also, also speaks of those who are apart from him who will face judgment. And so always it's salvation and judgment. Salvation for the saved, for those who have received the grace of God. Judgment for those unredeemed and wicked. Peter says, remember those words of the prophets about that. Second thing he wants us to remember is the commandment of our Lord and Savior through your apostles. That's an amazing phrase. You have to think of the context in which this happens. These people have heard about Jesus. They know what Jesus has taught. They know the commandments and the expectations that Jesus has. Where did they learn those? They learned them from the apostles, the apostles' teaching. What we call the apostles' teachings is your New Testament. That's the collection of the apostles' teachings. Now, these people that people writing to, that Peter writing to had never met Jesus. They'd never seen him. They'd never seen any of his miracles. They'd never seen any of the things that are happening. Those things were all some distance now away. They live in another part of the world. They're part of the empire. But Peter says, you don't remember the commandments of the Lord that you received through the apostles, through our teaching. And the implication is it's just as good. It's just the same quality of, of the positive truth as if you had been there to see and meet the Lord Jesus as Peter, in fact, himself had. And, of course, particularly he wants them to learn at this point what he has said and taught and commanded about his second coming. These false teachers say Jesus isn't coming back. This whole idea that there's going to be a physical return of Christ and everything's going to change and history's going to come to an end like we know it. No, no, that's, that's, that's nonsense. That's not what we ought to believe. That's not what the Bible says. They probably were referring to men, false teachers, who may be similar to the ones that Paul dealt with when he wrote to Timothy. Timothy described them in 2 Timothy 2.18, men who have swerved from the truth. They say that the resurrection has already happened. This final day of the, the resurrection, they are upsetting the faith of some. Probably they taught that the, the of, of resurrection of believers is, is for all believers already past tense. There's not going to be a bodily resurrection. All the resurrection means is, is this spiritual process, this spiritual resurrection. Very likely they took Paul's own teaching and, and said, well, see, that's what you taught, Paul. They may have referred back to Romans 6 where he describes baptism, how we are buried in Christ. Our old life is buried and we are raised. And we, we symbolize it in water baptism, but it speaks of, of a real experience that we have. It's, it very much may be what Colossians 2.12 says, where Paul said, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through the faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And so they would take a teaching like that where Paul said that and say, see, you... you Peter and these others are talking about the return of Christ and the resurrection of everyone, and it's already happened. We've already experienced that in Christ. There's no coming bodily resurrection. It's just a spiritual reality. And, of course, that fit very well with that common Greek idea that, that really what matters is what's on the inside. It's your spiritual experiences. It's your, your spirit, and, and your body is totally disconnected from that. And so the idea of a bodily resurrection Now, they said that's just a cleverly devised myth, and Peter's been dealing with that all the way through. They say, Jesus isn't coming back. You don't have to worry about about standing and answering for what you're doing in the body now. 
And what they were providing is really a very cleverly thought out cover for being able to live a sexually immoral life. It doesn't matter what you do with your body. What matters is your spirit. Demonstrate your spiritual freedom. Go ahead and defy all the physical and sexual restrictions that you think the Bible talks about. The problem with that is that Jesus never talked that way. The Bible never really talks that way. Our bodies are very important, and Jesus spoke of his physical bodily return. The resurrection accounts make it very clear that when he came out of the grave, he came out with a physical body that walked, that talked, that ate. Jesus said in Matthew 24, 42, Therefore, stay awake. There's this day coming. You do not know what that day when your Lord comes. It's when I'm coming back, and I'm coming back with a physical body. Well, Peter now takes the, the logic of these men, and he recaps, he summarizes the miserable, faulty logic of these false teachers. He says in verse 3, knowing that, first of all, scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. Verse 4, they will say, where's the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. So Peter says, in the last days, scoffers are going to come. I think we probably need to stop right now and say something about last days. I have seen over my lifetime, and it was, I think, probably a period in my life where I was confused about last days. Many of us, we think of last days, and we only think of of charts and timelines and intricate details predicting this is going to happen, this is going to happen, this is going to happen, and then I want to suggest that in the New Testament and the Bible, the idea of last days is a much simpler and a broader concept than that. I think most of you know, but if you don't, you need to know it from this day forward. The last days were ushered in at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ when he was born. And he lived a perfect life. And he died on a cross. And he was resurrected. And his Holy Spirit fell upon those church. That's why on the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit fell, Peter could say, quoting the prophet Joel, this is fulfilled. When Joel talked about the last days, he says, you're seeing it happen right now. Now, I will admittedly tell you that there well may be some last, last days. But all of us on this side of Christ, which all of us are, obviously, have been living in the last days. And Peter says, for those who live in this period of time, we should expect that there will be scoffers. That is, there will be people who will make fun of you, mock you, try to humiliate you, belittle you, make you feel like an ignoramus and uh, uneducated, whatever, if you profess faith and trust in a living Christ who is the Lord of history and who will be the judge of all mankind. And it will be difficult. It will make life hard. The New Testament over and over speaks that to follow Christ, to stand for him, will mean a kind of pressure, sometimes physical and cost you everything. Peter or Timothy, Paul wrote to Timothy in 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy 3.1, but understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. Some of that difficulty will come from the scoffers and the mockers, people who, who very openly profess their unbelief and, and would laugh and belittle those who hold the faith in the word of God and in the Christ who is going to come again. I noted a preacher that is greatly respected. He speaks pretty uh, highfalutin theological language often, but he came to this part and he said, rather than freaking out, that's one of my theological terms too, rather than freaking out when these kind of times come, when people oppose the gospel, when they don't believe what the Bible says, when they 
they take truth and they turn it into a joke when they belittle the Savior. Well, clearly that's not a good thing. It's not a pleasant thing for those who love the Lord to hear that. Just know that when you do hear it, when you experience it, when you see it in a thousand different avenues coming at you, some of you watched some of it on TV last night, you watch it almost every time you turn on the TV, that when it comes, what you're seeing is evidence that we are exactly in the time the Bible says we would be in. We are in last days, and people are going to mock and belittle everything of towards of Christ. God would not have us surprised. It is not fun to be humiliated. It is not fun to suffer. But suffering and those kind of things are even worse when you're shocked that they're happening to you. If you have a view of Christianity that says everything is going to be smooth and easy and everyone's going to like what I believe and they're going to fall in line with it and, and no one will oppose us, no one will twist what we say, none, none of that will happen, then we set ourselves up. When we're betrayed, when we're hurt, we're set up for more disappointment. Don't be surprised. Peter says don't be surprised at the way this is going to come. It may make your life miserable, but don't be surprised by it. This is the way it's going to be in the last days. They are going to be scoffers. Jesus said, many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. John in his letter wrote, so now, present tense, there are already many antichrist, plural, and they've already come. There's a spirit of antichrist in this age, in these days. And they're going to make the argument that the scoffers will come in the last days with their scoffing, and what they're doing is they're following their own sinful desires. I've often talked to people and young people and old people who have very honest questions, doubts. They wonder about things. There's nothing wrong with that. But I have to just tell you that almost always the leading voices that would lead people into to walking away from the Scripture, from the truth of God, from a life centered in the verities of God, you'll discover behind that there's another motive that's working on them. The real reason these scoffers want to scoff at the idea of a, of a judge who they're going to answer to, of a Christ who's going to return, of a people who are going to be held accountable with what they do in their life now is because they follow their own sinful desires. There's a famous uh, document written by Aldous Huxley. You can read his story. It's called Confessions of a Professed Atheist. Very, very honest about what really motivated his very clever and very eloquent statements of unbelief. He said, I had motives for not wanting the world to have meaning. I want it to be a materialistic world. There is no God. There is no creator. A world without meaning. It's all just blind chance. Consequently, assumed that it had none and was able without any difficulty to find satisfying reasons for this assumption. The philosopher who finds no meaning in the world is not concerned exclusively with a problem of pure metaphysics. He's also concerned to prove that there's no valid reason why he should personally not do just what he wants to do. For myself, as no doubt for most of my contemporaries, the philosophy of meaninglessness was essentially an instrument of liberation. The liberation we desired was simultaneously a liberation from a certain political and economic system and a liberation from a certain system of morality. We objected to the morality because it interfered with our sexual freedom. That's what's behind so much of what we see today, and we see it. We know the Bible understands life and understands us. The Bible's truth is what works in this world, and to deny it is ultimately to bring disaster to everyone. And we see people being flaunted at. We see young people being deluded by it. We know where it leads, what it does, and we want to scream out, Stop it! 
we must, even as we seek to seek that truth, we must never forget that what we're seeing, what we're experiencing is not God failing. It is a God who knows exactly how things were going to be. It's exactly what he said would happen. Now, exactly what are they scoffing about Peter's teaching that, that, that there's a day of the Lord a coming day? He says, they will say, where is the promise of his coming? Where's the promise of his coming? That's the focus of their scorn. John Piper has noted that this is an amazingly modern argument for rejecting the supernatural bodily second coming. It simply says the laws of nature are constant and unchanging. The sun has come up, it has gone down, the seasons have followed each other, the tides have risen and fallen for thousands of years in perfect order. Therefore, we must expect this constancy for the future. And any thought that one day the sky might be rolled up like a scroll and the earth purged with a global fiery judgment by the return of Christ is unimaginable and unwarranted. Yet that's exactly the position of so much of what we call modern science. And has been bought into by many who try to say they are Christians and follow the Lord in churches, but they reject the idea that there is a coming judgment, there is a coming change to the experience of all humanity, they do it for the same reason. Jesus, where is he? And this doesn't just have to be thinking about the second coming. It's, it's the kind of question that comes up, has probably come up in your mind. Okay, Jesus, where are you? Some of you have sorrows. You have sickness. You've had sufferings that you never anticipated, disappointments that you never imagined. You say, Lord, where are you? Where is Jesus? Where is he? That's what the scoffers were saying. How long have you been waiting? How long are you going to keep on waiting? He's not coming back. He's not going to do anything. That's the same arguments that were made to the prophets of God in the Old Testament. Jeremiah, behold, they say to me, where is the word of the Lord? Let it come. We keep waiting. And you say all these things, Jeremiah. We haven't seen it yet. It's been a long time. You find in Ezekiel, the days grow long and every vision comes to nothing. Now, you have to be honest. You don't have to be a false teacher to, to, to say, I wonder something about this too. Is this whole Christianity, is this real? Is this something we've just all talked ourselves into and convinced ourselves over so much time and, and we're all in some big delusion? Some of you are probably at church this morning, and quite honestly, you're here today because your family kind of expects you to be here, and you, you just it's easier, you know? Maybe at one time you took all this rather seriously, but, but now you've become a cynic. So quite honestly, you don't really pray anymore because after all, what does it do? The gospel doesn't encourage you because you, you don't imagine that it really makes a difference. And so you, you really, to some degree, are like these men that Peter has been opposing. Where's the promise of his coming? Can we really count on this Jesus? That's what these false teachers are saying. Nothing's happened for hundreds of years. Where's the promise of his coming? They say, forever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. The fathers here is probably, very well maybe, in the book of Genesis, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the fathers, the patriarchs. If it's not that, it's, it's the great heroes, perhaps, of the Old Testament. They say since that time, for all the, all the things we've heard about, whatever, we, what's really happened? We've heard over and over about this cataclysmic event in which God's going to judge the world and make all things right and judge the wicked. And, but there is no God to deal with. He's never going to do anything. 
God doesn't do anything. He doesn't do anything good. He doesn't do anything bad. He's just not there. That's what the scoffers say. There's an amazing verse in Zephaniah chapter 1. I'm sure you've probably read Zephaniah this week, haven't you? Zephaniah, we read, At that time I will search Jerusalem with lamps, and I will punish the men who are complacent. Now, how do you see their complacency? Those who say in their hearts, The Lord will not do good, nor will he do ill. This person may well say, well, there's, there's a God. There's probably a God. It's, you know, you've got to have a first cause. Logic drives me to think there has to be a God. But, but it really doesn't matter what you believe about him. It's, it's just look at the world. God's not really doing anything, is he? Not doing bad things. He's not doing It's just he doesn't really care, evidently. And some of us may well find ourselves, we come to church, we say the right things, we sing the right songs, but in fact, we are functional deists. Or we're agnostics. We... We just don't know that anything can be known about this God. Who who can know? The idea that he works in our lives personally and minutely, that he cares, that he's counted the numbers of hair on my head, that I'm I'm a value to him, more value than the sparrow who falls from the tree, and he knows all about that. Oh, no. My friend, I stand here to remind you today and to affirm you today and do everything I can to help you see today and stir up in you today a personal experience with him and that you will again know afresh and anew that there's a God. He is sovereign over the ways of men and he cares about you. Now, we get crazy about this. Some of us do every once in a while. There are a few of us that think we're so anointed we can see every little movement in history, every little detail. This happens, that happens, every earthquake, everything. And we, we know what it all means. We got it all figured. I don't know that. But there's the opposite of that, too. That's the idea of thinking that God doesn't move in history, that God doesn't bless nations that trust him, that there are not consequences to those who, who ignore his word and ignore his truth and ignore his son. That, that you, that, 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 I've lived long enough to see that that is not true. And I haven't lived that long. I don't care what you say, young people. They say there's nothing he's going to do. Things been going on. It's going to keep on going. Nothing's going to change. And it never has changed. That's just the way it is. And Peter now has to answer that. And he does that. There's a number of things, but just all we're going to get to this morning. He answers that in the first place with two, and I've been waiting to get to this part. You have been too. To two big water events. Two big water events. I need two volunteers right away. Quickly, quickly. Two men, two. Come on up here, Lucas. You volunteer for everything. I need a water balloon filled with, I need this filled with water. You're going to go back to the bathroom. I want about a quarter, I want you to blow it, quarter of water, blow it up. This is big, okay, big balloon, blow it up, all right? All right? Can you blow up a balloon? All right, I want you to blow it up really big. All right, the two of you can help if you swap germs or whatever. No, stay right here, don't go anywhere, just stay right here. Just stand right there, blow it up, okay. All right, while they're getting their balloons ready, let's uh, look at the scripture. Verse 5, Peter's answering, he starts with the first big water event. Verse 5, where they deliberately overlooked this fact. Not just they've forgotten it. Maybe they have forgotten it, but they've sort of deliberately forgotten it. They've forgotten it in the sense that, how are we doing? Very good. They deliberately have overlooked this, that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. So why are the scoffers wrong? Water event number one the creations of the heavens and the earth. Let me just pause right here. There are a whole lot of Christians of all stripes 
that it looks to me seem to be running from the creation account in Genesis as something we ought to take seriously and that has meaning and understanding for the world. A whole lot of Christians need to learn how to reconcile Genesis with what's being taught. It's taught as dogma. It is not allowed to be questioned. You will not be allowed to speak, have a public forum, to be given a... That's probably far enough. Uh, (laughs) Let me help you tie it. You did a really good job. Now just stay right up here. Both of you stay right up here. You're going to help us out in a minute, all right? They were all nervous. They weren't listening to a word I said, just watching you blow up that balloon. Just stay right there. Don't lose it. No, don't play with it. Just stand right there. Here we go. (laughs) There is a dogma in this country that would totally dismiss anybody who believes the scriptures and believes that God is the creator, who would dismiss the idea that there's any place even in intelligent discussion or understanding that Genesis 1 through 11 has any possibility of being actually factually true. Go to any natural museum, go to any institution of education, listen to National Geographic, Discovery Channel, on and on we can go. There's only one unquestioned, unquestionable point of view. And what's happened, understandably, has happened to a lot of Christians. We, we want to you know, we're, we're pro-science. And by the way, Christians are pro-science. There's just a big difference between science with a capital S, real science, that's something very different. And what we often have tempted to do is we have taken the doctrine of creation and we've tried to shoehorn it into whatever the dogma is about the beginnings of the earth. Why do we do this? We don't do this on any other doctrine. We talked a lot of this week about about the mortality of the soul and the resurrection day that's coming for all of us. We talked a lot about it this weekend. I don't go down to the funeral home and wait for some body to rise up from the dead to say, I believe in the power of resurrection and eternal life. I don't go down to the Atlantic Ocean or the Indian River or my neighborhood pool and try to walk across it to believe that Jesus, my Lord, actually was able to walk on water. So I don't think we ought to do this with creation either. Why don't you come over and stand with these guys and keep them in line. They're uh, doing great. I'm sorry, my friends, but Darwin, and the kind of natural history that's taught, are not unbiased, and they're not all-knowing. And you have good reasons to have doubts for it, intellectual doubts for it. I would commend to you, if you are interested in this area, if, if you will just give it a shot. I mean, you go ask the average person in Institute. Gray Comfort did this in one of his great videos, just asking people in, in you know, her majoring in environmental sciences and everything else. And you ask them, you would raise the question about creation. Do you believe there's a God who created? And they would just, like most people, they would just sneer at creationism. And then you ask them to, to, he would ask them very, well, give me one observable, measurable, tangible way we can prove the evolutionary theory that's, that's taken as a given. And it's, it's just hilarious to watch these people, including professors. Well, well, I, they all based upon the faith of, of a whole, and, and nobody has done a better job at, at punching a hole in that and showing the scientific credibility of the, of the biblical approach like Stephen Mayer. 
I would commend to you, he has three books, uh, Signature in the Cell, The Return of the God Hypothesis, Darwin's Doubt. Darwin's Doubt, I think, is the brand new one. They are, they are heavy reading. They are highly scientific. He brings some of the great scientists of the world to, to join him in that. If, if you're just going to accept it, at least you ought to hear the other side. And you ought to know that there is another side. But, but to say the other side means, in this culture, that you will be closed out from everything. Well... They are saying, these false teachers are saying, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. Nothing changes. There's no direction of history. It's all the same. Everything stays the same from the beginning of creation. And what Peter does, he jumps into their last statement, the beginning of creation. He says, now let's think about creation for a moment. They deliberately overlooked this fact that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. There's a lot we could say about the verse and about this topic, but clearly the point of the first chapter of Genesis is that water is absolutely a central thing involved in the creation of the world. It starts at the very beginning, a world that is watery, deep chasms of it. It is unorganized. It is dark. It is, it is it's chaos, and it's out of that that God moves and works to bring order and purpose and everything we know about life now. Now, water itself... It's not something that you probably think enough about. It's not something that you probably too many times have sat in church and lifted your hands and praised to the glory of God for the creation of water. You know who, who made what? Do you know who invented water? Jesus did. 1 John 1, 3 says, All things were made through him. Without him was not anything made that was made. Now, we have some water here. Take a simple glass of water. We don't think much about it. We, we know it physically. We know it's important to us. But the fingerprint of the Creator is all over it. We drink it. We cook with it. We bathe in it. We clean with it. We play in it. We find beauty in it. We travel on it. We get energy from it. We love the seafood that comes from it. And in fact, all the food we eat, it absolutely depends upon it. Now you notice what color is water? What color is that? You're right. It's slightly blue. But Generally, we would say it's colorless. If you're sitting back there, you may notice there is a slight in water that's pure. Even that, there's a slight bluish tint. But for the most part, it's clear. That's really important, by the way. If the, if, if the water was like other liquids and it wasn't clear like that, the sunshine couldn't go very far in it. In the oceans, it would just life would all have to exist very, very close, be a lot less life. But now they can go hundreds and hundreds of feet because it's clear. It's also um, has other qualities that are very important. It is tasteless. That may not seem important to you, but it is. There's a lot of food you like cooked in water, but if it already had another taste and you cooked what you like in that water, yuck. It really makes everything possible. Uh, water in its pure state is not an acid or a base. It's cooked, perfect for cooking and drinking. It's a perfect solvent for all kinds of minerals and substances and nutrients. That's essential for us, for, the, for our life. That it, it works to get things to, to make our bodies work and to remove the waste from our bodies. It's only a couple hundred years ago that we got to the point of our knowledge about God's creation that we could organize things into a, a, a periodic table. We know that water is made of H2O. Let me show you how smart I am. Somebody told me this joke yesterday. A guy uh, was in a restaurant and a server walked up and said, what can I get you to drink? The first guy said H2O. And the guy next to him said, well, H2O2. They brought the drinks. The first guy was fine. The second guy died immediately. H2O2 is hydrogen peroxide. <laughs> See how smart I am? <laughs> it turns out that water 
is slow to boil. That's one of its most amazing qualities. It does not heat quickly. It takes, you know, a watched pot never boils. Boiling water seems to take forever. And I think that's the first thing we want to show here. So uh, let me get my candle, see if I can light it. And uh, we'll light this up. Oh, I hope we're going to light this up. Okay. You step over there. Let's, uh, let's come around here, guys. Bring your balloon. Lucas, you go over there. Yeah, here we go. All right, I want you to take that balloon. I want you to slowly hold it like that. Can you hold it from the top? I want you to hold it up, and I want you to lower it down on top of that flame, okay? Just lower it down. Oh, man. Okay. Thank you. You guys can be seated. Lucas? At least it's not rat traps. Right, okay. Right, right. Yeah. So, oh, see, my balloon, my fire went out. Let's try it again. You'd be happy if this went light, wouldn't you? So. Okay, Lucas. I was going to wear light brown pants this morning, but I changed my mind. Um, come on, Lucas. I want you to hold it up and slowly drop it right on that flame. Hold it up, get it above it, and drop it down. Hmm. I practice this a hundred times. It doesn't do that. Get another balloon. We're doing this. Go get another balloon. Get more, put more water in it, please. Okay. Come back. We're gonna. You're gonna redeem me. All right. All right. In the meantime, let's talk about some other things about water before I show you the high heat capacity of water. <laughs> um. Water in its solid form is ice. What does ice do? It floats. It spills too. Ice floats. So in its solid form, ice sits on the top of its liquid form. That is extremely rare. That's normally not the way liquids and things that turn into liquid, and they're so, that's not the way they work. Normally the colder something gets, the more dense it gets, and it falls to the bottom. And in fact, that's what, li- what water does. You get it colder and colder. You take a lake out someplace and the the temperature to the north drops down and the water that's at the top begins to sink to the bottom. It's denser because it's getting colder. And that's important because the water at the top is oxygen rich. As the coldness comes, it drops it down to the bottom, brings oxygen down to the creatures down there. In the meantime, it stirs up the water on the bottom who now rises to the top with all the nutrients in it. That's very important to life too. But of course, if it just worked like that, that's all that happened. It means the water would freeze and, and we get colder and colder, and everything living in that lake or stream, every marine animal would be crushed and die. But something very strange happens to water. As that water gets to colder and colder, sinks down, when it gets to 4 degrees Celsius, something happens. Instead of getting denser, it gets less dense, and it begins to float to the top. So there's this pressure, it creates this, this circulation, and yet when it gets to the bottom, it that coldest water now begins as it gets colder, floats to the top, forms that ice layer that insulates the water that actually keeps it from freezing all the way solid, all the way down. It's a unique property about this liquid that makes it stand out from all else. This water is um, um, absolutely made in a way that's, that's unique. It's, 
It's got a viscosity to it, so it, it, it's sticky just the right amount, not too much, not too little. It's one of the most vis, vis, sticky substances you can find, except for maybe mercury itself. That's really important. That's how raindrops get made. That's how dewdrops form on spider webs. That's the reason you can fill a coffee cup actually above the lid, and it's why some insects can skip across the water. But what it means for us is that water does not too quickly evaporate. It means that water can move through the soil and into root systems and grow things. You know that you and I are approximately 60 to 70% water. The babies in our church have the most water, about 78% water. That's why they're so squishy. <laughs> By year one, that drops to about 65%, and you adult men are 60% or less. Not so much fun at all. The brain and the heart are composed of 73% water. Your lungs are about 83% water. Your skin has 64% water. Muscles and kidneys are 79% water. Even your bones are 31% water. And as I said, water slowly heats more slowly than upstairs substances. And we're going to prove it. Yeah, we are. <laughs> this is enough, right? Yeah, that's fine, yeah. Here we go. I'm going to hold this still. I'm going to slowly bring it. Black on the bottom, but it didn't bust. It worked. Thank you. No, take it home. It's yours. So, yeah, hold it in your lap right there. Be fine. Now, this is important. That water changes temperature like that is another one of those qualities that's absolutely essential to life as we know it. It's the reason in our world that at night, because there's 70% water bodies everywhere, that the temperature will only on the average fall about 20 degrees. You go to someplace like Mars where there's not all that water and it changes by 180 degrees between day and night. It's the reason that when you go exercise and work hard that your body doesn't get to almost to a boiling point and you die because the heat accumulates so fast. And why when you live in the north and you go outside to make a snowman, if your water wasn't like this, you'd be frozen like the snowman in just a few minutes. It is absolutely... There, you go with... Those of you that know this, you know there's hundreds and hundreds of qualities about water. It's the most amazing substance ever and the one who created it is the Lord himself. The Lord Jesus Christ. And life and everything we know and the world, the creation itself, the Bible so accurately says at the beginning, is at the very center of what he has made. The first, the second sentence of the Bible, Genesis 1-2, I believe it's the sentence that Peter's referring to, says the earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And then 722 times it's mentioned throughout the Bible. So you get to almost to the very end of the Bible, almost the very last word, Revelation 22:7. The Spirit and the bride says, Come, let the one who is thirsty come, let the one who desires to take the water of life come without price. You know, in the, the creation, then there's this marvelous place called Eden. And what makes it Eden? There's a river that runs through it. And then there's another big water event. And then we come to Exodus and, and Moses. Where do we hear Moses' story starting? The one who will be the redeemer of the people of God. He starts being saved from the Nile River where his family has placed him. And then he comes back as an adult, as a servant of God. He turns the waters of the Nile River to blood. He causes frogs to come out of the Nile River to plague the land. He causes water and its frozen substance to fall from heavens and to shred the land of Israel. Egypt is hell. And the final expression of it is at the Red Sea where his people are saved and the enemy is destroyed as they walk across and through that dry land made by the right hand of God. 
It was this promise of water that was so needed by the people. So twice significantly, the water is from, springs from a rock to feed the needs of the people. They keep going through that desert because they have a promise in Deuteronomy. For the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land, a land of brooks, of water, of fountains, and springs flowing out of the valleys and hills. God tells his people to make a tabernacle, and in that tabernacle, one of the most prominent features, difficult to make for these people, was a large bronze laver that they were to fill with water, and the priest couldn't begin to do anything in there until he was washed in that laver of water. Later there would be a Syrian general who would go to see the prophet of God, and the prophet of God would tell him the only answer for his leprosy was to go to the Jordan River and dip in it seven times, and then he would be clean. And our Savior on the night in which he was about to die for our sins, to pay the price for our sins, knelt in an upper room and took a a basin of water and washed his disciples' feet. This same Lord is the one who spoke in the psalmist. You remember in Psalms, a righteous person is said to be like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its season and its leaf does not wither and all that he does he prospers. We all know the shepherd's psalm, that he leads me beside still waters. The New Testament starts with John baptizing in the Jordan River. Jesus, who is indeed man, but is also the creator, God. He is Lord over his water, and he demonstrates that he can walk over that water. He can take a storm at sea and stop it with a word. He can take water, and he can turn it into wine. And most importantly, he could say to your hungry, dry, desperate heart this morning, whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become to him a spring of water welling up into eternal life. Peter says to these scoffers, I remind you that God created the heavens and the earth. He did it out of water. It was at the center of everything. And he took that watery chaos and he created the world and the order and everything we know in it. Psalm 33, 6, by the word of the Lord, the heavens were made and the breath of his mouth by their host. Hebrews 1, 30, Christ upholds the universe by the word of his power. This refutes that claim. They say everything's been the same. Everything's never changed. It's it's just an unending cycle of history. And there's there's nothing, nothing will ever change. And they go back to say it's from creation it's been that way. And, and Peter is saying, just stop. Just think what you're saying. You believe in creation. Well, if you believe there's a creator, then it changes everything. If Genesis 1, 1 is right, it changes everything. It means that the God who made this world is very different than the creatures he created. Those of us who have been made are very different category than the one who is the maker of it all. It means there was never a time when this God was not in the beginning. Before the beginning, there was God, and then he made us. It means that a God who could create the world with his words, it means that there's certainly no reason he can't intervene in that world when he chooses to, and there's certainly nothing too hard for him to do when you can create the universe with a word. By the way, the idea of words means language, which means information, which is central to everything in creation. And to try to explain creation and say there's no input of information is a nonsensical idea. It's making the whole theories fall apart for many people. Peter is saying, you think that nothing has ever happened since the beginning of creation, but you believe in creation itself? You cannot scoff. The course of the natural events is no more a pattern that God is stuck with and and unable to speak to than it was at the very beginning. We need to guard ourselves, someone has said, against the pseudoscientific notion that, that nature is a law unto itself. It is not. What we call the laws of nature are the tireless whisperings of the Almighty. And if he should choose to raise his voice, the cataclysm will come. The creation speaks of a God who, of course, can intervene and bring to judgment his making. And second water event, we deal with it very quickly. Water event number two is the flood. He says, verse 6, and that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. 
He says, you're wrong that things have continued the same since the beginning of creation. It wasn't that long into creation when God brought judgment on the world in Noah's day, a great deluge that flooded the whole world, a great upheaval, evidence of a great flood that's in every culture, every people, every continent of the world. God used the same means that he used in creation to destroy the world. He took the water that he brought order to and he decreated the world in the flood as he brought it back to chaos again. And the world that was perished, wiped clean, Peter is going to say is a picture for how the last judgment is going to be. At the flood, the world wasn't annihilated. It wasn't some death ray from the stars that blew the whole thing up, but everything about it changed. And I think that's the picture of what's going to happen at the end. I'm looking to a new heavens and a new earth. I hope they're going to be on, I think they're going to be on this very planet. I don't know if Vero Beach, we'll be able to locate this spot, but we're going to live in a real earth, a real heavens, real earth, but it's going to be wiped clean, thank God. Well, Lucas took too long getting that balloon right. I don't know what, uh, <laughs> he did just fine. Let me just say this morning, dear friends, I believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. I believe in God who created the world. I believe in God who's going to judge the world. And the only one who knows about the beginning and the only one who knows about the end ultimately is the one who's in charge of them both. And in between them, he has come in his flesh in Jesus Christ and he went to a cross. And he died not only to say the legal penalty I owe against God for my sin, but he came to give me what I needed most, his life. Life that's deeper and richer than just biological life. Life that's, that's living water. And this morning, I would call you today to trust this same Savior, this same God, and to follow him and to give your life to him. The Bible makes it very clearly. It's what Peter has been saying. First, you trust. You don't earn anything. You don't deserve anything. You just trust. But when you trust, you're going to find his spirit's going to invade your life. He cleanses you from your sin. He wipes the slate clean. He continues to do that every day. It'll never be what you earn, but as you trust him, as you turn from trusting yourself and trust him, then he changes your life into obedience, into blessing, into following him. And if you're not doing that, that's what you ought to do. If you're, if you're playing down this whole idea that, that it really doesn't matter, you, you, you're living, you're living you, you, may, you may come to church and pledge allegiance to, of course, Jesus is coming back, but that's not really calculated into how you think. You need to rethink. I mean, some of you believe in some sports teams, and you're hoping for the day when they win the championship. You know they probably aren't. Very unlikely. They haven't for years and decades and decades. And so your life is not really, but it's back there in the back of your mind. Yeah, you, you know, one day, but it doesn't really affect you. I mean, if you're from Alabama, probably things different. But and some of us, that's the way we think of Jesus' return. Oh, it's back there. It's some little theological nugget we say at church. But I think Peter would want to say to us this morning, this is real. It's true. You ought to calculate, figure life, organize life. If there's an end to this history, it could come at any moment, and you ought to live so that when it comes, you don't have to be ashamed, you don't have to be filled with regrets, and you'll be ready when he returns.